My name is Larry, and uh, yeah, I, I, today is Advent Sunday, like Alice said earlier, and, and um, I, I grew up in a church tradition that didn't really think about the church calendar all that much. I don't even know if we had uh, like an Easter service, I mean, not Easter service, a Good Friday service or like a Christmas Eve service or anything like that. We just did the Sundays, and, but I think as an adult, I've come to really appreciate the church calendar. You know, um, Advent means arrival. And during the season, we are uh, the ancient Israelites anticipating the arrival of the Messiah, the arrival of Christmas. And uh, I understand Phil and I were actually meeting up, uh, Pastor Phil and I, we were meeting up um, a few weeks ago, and the random guy came to start talking to us, and he was going on and on about um, the pagan influences in, in Christmas and, you know, the Christmas tree and things like that. And I understand, you know, there's all sorts of uh, controversy in some Christian circles, you know, around uh, the church calendar and, and Christmas in particular. People say, you know, the modern Christ the Christmas holiday has merged Christian traditions with uh, traditions from other religions, and so it shouldn't be celebrated. And uh, other people, they point out that December 25th probably wasn't Jesus's birthday. He probably was born in the spring and and this we, we borrow from a lot of other religions over the years that celebrated a winter solstice thing. And this, that's probably true, too. And, and so I, I think it's—so in my view, you know, Christmas is not like you have to celebrate this thing to be a Christian or something like that. If you, if you have certain convictions and you don't want to celebrate, it's not the end of the world. Um, but for me personally, I love Christmas for a few reasons. One, this is a time when the global church has decided— historically, uh, to remember Jesus' birth together. Um, it's, I mean, it, it, there's not a super long history. Christmas actually wasn't super, super popular the way we celebrate it until around the middle, uh, around the Renaissance time period in Europe. But there's a pretty long history of people coming together all around the world uh, to celebrate Jesus' birth together. And I think it's beautiful to link arms with the global church whenever there's opportunities to do that. I'm a fan. Also, you know, I think about the fact that we live in a society where even non-Christians, they associate this holiday with the birth of Jesus. You know, there's a whole Santa Claus thing, and there's a whole Mariah Carey thing and all that. But um, many non-Christians, they still recognize this is linked with the birth of Jesus. And so I'm thinking this is one of the best opportunities we have as Christians all year round to talk about Jesus with non-Christians. And so I'm not going to pass that up. And so if, if, if that's already on people's minds, and then I'm going to feel free to talk about it. So that's another reason why I celebrate it. Anyways, uh, you know, one of the longstanding uh, traditions of Christmas is Christmas music. We have a whole genre of Christmas music in the secular world. But there's also, uh, in the Christian world, we have a whole collection of hymns uh, called Christmas hymns, and it's interesting because we don't have Easter hymns. We don't really have Easter songs, not, not at least not in the same way, but we certainly have Christmas songs, and I think it's very fitting because the Christmas account in the book of Luke actually has four songs, and so that's what we'll be doing uh, starting today uh, throughout the month of December. Every week, every Sunday, we will be highlighting one of these songs in the book of Luke. And it's, we're, tried, we're titling this short sermon series, The First Christmas Carols. And they wouldn't have called it Christmas Carols back then, but essentially these are uh, poems or songs that people 
said or sang uh, around the time of Jesus' birth in celebration of Jesus' birth and anticipation of Jesus' birth. And so that's what we'll be doing. And I think there's a lot we can learn about the Christmas story through these. All right. So the first one is the Song of Mary. And the Song of Mary is sometimes known in certain circles as the Magnificat. And uh, the Song of Mary is found in Luke 46 to 55. And in this context, uh, Mary, she recently found out that uh, an angel appeared to her and told her she was going to be the mother of the Son of God. And she's nervous, excited, and, and as proof, the, the angel says, go visit your cousin Elizabeth or your relative Elizabeth. Uh, it's debated whether it's a cousin or a relative. But anyways, she goes and visits Elizabeth and finds out Elizabeth in her old age also uh, is pregnant with a child. Further proof that this was not just all in her head. This was actually God at work. This was a miracle. And, uh, and Elizabeth uh, blesses her and, uh, and, and praises her. And then in response, Mary sings the song. Okay, This is actually the uh, longest uh, spoken passage by any woman in the New Testament. Okay, but she sings a song about how she was, how she was chosen above all women uh, to bear the Son of God, and she's just overwhelmed with joy at this idea, and she's singing about the significance of that, uh, not just in her life, but just what that means for all the world. Okay, because as you see, you know, Mary, she was just a poor peasant woman, uh, living as a Jew under Roman occupation. And so she, in the eyes of the world, she was a nobody. She didn't have the prestige, the fame, the wealth. But for whatever reason, God chose her. And um, Mary understood that this decision by God to choose her above other people, it was representative of something much larger going on, which is what she's saying about. So let's read this song together. This is Luke chapter 1, starting from verse 46. And Mary, and Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped to serve in Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. What a song. You know, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he's a German pastor who lived in the early 20th century. He once said of this song, The Song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. It is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom we sometimes see in paintings. This is a passionate, surrendered, proud, enthusiastic Mary who speaks out here. This song has none of the sweet, nostalgic, or even playful tones of some of our Christmas carols. It is instead a hard, strong, inexorable song about collapsing thrones and humbled lords of this world, about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. These are the tones of the women prophets of the Old Testament that now come to life in Mary's mouth. 
So this song, uh, it's, it's an extraordinary song. You know, oftentimes when we think about the Christmas message, the birth of Jesus, uh, we have very soft uh, feelings. You know, we think about silent nights, you know, away in the manger. It's like sort of in the lullaby category, right? But Mary's song is a declaration about the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. And it is... Uh, and the reason why I think this is so powerful is it runs against the status quo of the way things work in our world. Um, it's, a, it's in direct contradiction to the status quo of humanity. You know, in normal circumstances, if outside of the will of God, just in normal circumstances, the default state of humanity is the powerful often become more powerful, the corrupt become more powerful, the rich become more rich, and so on. But the kingdom of God in this song is revealed to flip the whole system on its head. Just look at some of this language, okay? He has scattered those who are proud. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry. He has sent the rich away empty. Like there's this, there's all this language about how there's a status quo and God is changing it all up. He's reversing all these trends. And, um, you know, Sometimes when we think about the Christmas story, the story of Jesus, we think about it in very individualistic terms. Okay, so Jesus, he was born as a baby, and then later he grew up, and then he died for me, and he was my personal savior. And all of that is true, but I think Mary's song clearly shows that there are also widespread sociological implications for Jesus' arrival as well. Jesus didn't just come to save my soul in the spiritual sense, but he came to change the way things operate in our world. He came to make all things right. And so those who have been historically or generationally oppressed, he will lift up. And those who have been historically and generationally oppressive, he will bring down. So that is also part of the Christmas story as well. And Jesus himself, he would later, later pick up on this theme when he became an adult. Uh, he often talked about how the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And uh, uh, the servant of all is the greatest of all. And he would use language about how essentially the poor, the hungry, and the grieving will swap places with those who are rich and powerful and corrupt. And so check out, for example, this is Luke 6, 20 to 26. This is Luke's uh, version of the Beatitudes. It's a little bit different from the Beatitudes, which, is, which are more famous, but let's, let's check this out. This is Luke 6, 20. Looking at his disciples, he said, this is Jesus, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. 24, but woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. And so a lot of this language echoes some of the stuff in Mary's song. You know, there's, again, there's this uh, reversing of trends in which Usually the powerful become more powerful and the weak become more weak, but uh, there's essentially swapping places. And, uh, you know, you might be um, 
reading this, and you might think, you know, reading stuff like this, it might sound great to someone like Mary, who is, you know, poor and downtrodden, but maybe to some of us who, um, who are more privileged, we might be more rich, or we might be more well-fed, or we might be, we might laugh, okay, <laughs> or we might have good reputations and things like that. When we read stuff like this, it's, it's a little bit nerve-wracking. It's a little bit frightening. Like, what does that mean? What does that mean for me? Because it seems like Jesus is pronouncing these woes upon me. And I think that's true of a lot of people who are just fortunate enough to be born in, in, in 20th or 21st century America. What does that mean for people like us? Well, I think the reason why, you know, this is a little bit uncomfortable for us is I think we, again, we have the tendency to read the Bible through an individualistic lens. And so we often ask, oh, what does this mean for me individually? Because we live in an individualistic society. That's just how we read the Bible sometimes. Uh, but I think the, I don't think the point of the Bible, I don't think what Jesus is saying is every single person who is rich will now be poor. I, I, I think he's talking holistically. He's using this lens in this culture, which is often very collectivistic. And I think another thing that's noteworthy is this is uh, poetry, okay, so that's why there are these stanzas, and that's why there's indentations and things like that, and that's why Mary is, her thing is a song, and oftentimes, okay, when you read poetry or when you read songs, there's things like exaggeration that are used, or just, they just talk in very sweeping, generalizing language, all right? Okay, so I'll, again, I want to clarify, I don't think this is saying Every single person who is rich or every single person who laughs is now going to be ruined, okay? I think this is poetic language describing the extent to which God is flipping everything upside down. So there is a normal way of doing things, and God is going to flip everything on its head, not every single person's life on its head, but the whole system is going to be flipped upside down. Now, the Bible never uses this word system, okay? And so this is sort of a modern term. People use words like systemic sins and systemic oppression and things like that. But, so I, I think it's, you know, there's a lot of different meanings behind what that means. But I think it's important to get at this idea that it's not just individual decisions that are being reversed. There's whole cultures that are being reversed. There's values that are being reversed. There are uh, uh, trends that are being reversed. There's patterns that have taken place as a result of history or as a result of practices over time that have caused certain injustices, and those things are being reversed, all right? And so you can use the word system if you want, but that's, that's, I think that's the idea that God is getting at. There are systems in place that have maintained a status of inequality that I think, because of the Christmas story, are now being disrupted, okay? And so if that's the case, then I think the question for us as followers of Jesus is, whose side are we on? Whose side are we on? Are we on the side, oh, too far. Oh, whose side are we on? Okay. Are we on the side of the rich and the corrupt who currently benefit from the old system? Or are we on the side of the poor and the righteous who benefit from the new system? Um, because here's the thing, you know, if, imagine there was no Christmas. Imagine Jesus was never born. Imagine Mary never sang the song. There would be no evidence that God was going to reverse these systems. There was no evidence that, there would be no evidence that God is intervening in human affairs, and we would just be led to believe that the status quo will always be the status quo. 
And so if we want to get ahead in life, if we want to survive in life, we just have to operate by the status quo. We just engage with the rules of the status quo. And sometimes that requires elevating ourselves at the expense of others. Uh, we want to be rich ourselves. We want to be powerful ourselves. We want to make a name for ourselves. We want to be happy ourselves. And so sometimes we need to climb over other people to get what we want. Um, you know, we need to outcompete the job applicant next to us. We need to outmaneuver the coworker next to us. We need to outperform the classmate next to us. We have to do all these things in order to survive. That's just how the world works, and that's how it's always worked. And so we just abide by the, the rules of engagement in our world, which are the survival of the fittest. You know, and here's another dimension about living in the world with this sort of status quo is not only do you have to play this game individually, but you also understand there are benefits to associating with the powerful. And so we also have to play this game where we have to get on the good side of the rich and the powerful and the famous. And so you, we network and we manipulate and we strategize and we do that so we can ally ourselves with the strong. You know, it's a bit like the Hunger Games. You know, if you, uh, uh, the, the way the Hunger Games worked, if you're not familiar, this is a book and became a movie, okay? If you don't play the game, you die. Okay, in the Hunger Games, you're, you're, you're sort of selected by lottery to, a, if you can't just sit out and just twiddle your thumbs. Like, if, you're going to die. And so, the, the, the nature of the Hunger Games is you have to play the games in order to survive. Your ethics have to go out the window in order for you to survive. You have to hurt other people in order to survive. And even if there are people that you don't like, if they are powerful, you can't be on their bad side. You have to align with them. You have to do this dirty work of aligning with them. Otherwise, they'll target you. You know, I was um, uh, talking to an old friend recently over video chat a few weeks ago, and uh, he's an old college friend. We, haven't, we didn't talk in a long time, but uh, he... Uh, he's, in, he's an Israeli. Uh, he lives in Israel. He even spent some time fighting for the Israel uh, Defense Forces. And, um, and I, just had, I just wanted to learn because he, he was posting a lot of stuff politically, and I just wanted to learn from his perspective. So we just scheduled a video chat and wanted to talk, okay? And, and I want to be clear, okay? I, I'm not intending to be political at all. I understand in a room like this, people have all sorts of different positions, okay? And I'm also not saying this person is representative of everyone in one camp, okay? So I'm not saying that, but I just want to point out one thing he said in this conversation that I found really fascinating, okay? You know, we were talking about whether or not there should be a ceasefire between Israel and Gaza, and um, his stance was no. He was making the case that um, we needed to snuff Hamas out as quickly as possible, and, uh, a, and a ceasefire would pre prevent that. A ceasefire would allow Hamas to regroup, to re-strategize, and so on, okay? And, and then the conversation drifted to how do we fight wars ethically? Like, is there an ethical standard for how you fight wars? And uh, we were talking about whether the Israeli military was committing war crimes and uh, that went against basic human rights. And, and he said something that was very fascinating. And again, this is not representative of everyone on the pro-Israel side, but I thought this was fascinating. He said, I'm paraphrasing, but the rules of war are always changing. What might have been appropriate in one war might be inappropriate in another war. But each war is different, and in any given war, it doesn't really make sense to abide by certain rules when your enemy is not abiding by those rules. 
And so it's a nice deal to abide by these rules of war, but it's not realistic. And, and he said this. He says, this is a life and death situation. If we abide by these rules while the other side doesn't, then we will die. And, um, and it was just so interesting that he, he warded it like that. And, uh, and, I, and it, it, it does feel like sometimes I talk to people on this side, like there, there is this sense, like we have to essentially operate this way in a way in which it's like the Hunger Games almost, like our ethics go out the window because if we don't behave this way, then we will die. We have, this is the only way we know how to survive. And I understand, you know, war is complicated. I don't understand all of foreign policy, okay? And there's all sorts of historical factors, legal factors, religious factors. So I'm not commenting on all of those things. So I'm, and I'm not, so I'm not trying to say he's right or wrong, okay? But what I found interesting was just this, this phrase it, that essentially it doesn't matter what the rules are because it's a life and death situation and we just have to fight to survive. Um, and it just... You know, I, I feel like that's how so much of the world operates today. Um, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there. It's a survival of the, of the fittest. And so when, when in desperate times you resort to des desperate measures, you've got to do whatever it takes. But is that the only option we have? Is that the only option we have? You know, in the Hunger Games, in the first book, um, you know, you're supposed to fight until one person is left. But Katniss and um, Peta, the only two, they're the only two people left in, in this book, and they decide they're going to commit double suicide. And, and, and obviously the authorities of this the game, they don't want to do that. You know, that's, that's going to mess up their, uh, yeah, it's, gonna, it's, gonna, it's bad for the ratings, okay? So they, they intervene and say, actually, you're both winners. And, uh, and somehow, it's fascinating because Katniss and Peta, they found a loophole. They were able to both survive despite the horrendous rules of engagement in this world that say only one person can survive, they somehow found a loophole so that both of them survived. And I think it's a beautiful picture of what can possibly happen when you choose to step out in faith and you choose not to operate by the rules of engagement in this world. Sometimes you can choose the path of righteousness and you can still survive. And you can find a loophole. It's scary. It doesn't always work. Sometimes it's, it generally feels like you're receiving an automatic death sentence, but it's possible there can be a loophole and you can find your way out. Very similar. Jesus was born in the world as a baby, and when Jesus came, he changed the rules of the game. It was as if like a cheat code had entered the world, okay? Because, you know, in the, the way the world operated was if you're powerful, you become more powerful. If you're powerless, you become more powerless, and you just you know, survive the fittest and so on. But Jesus, he was the all-powerful Son of God, and he chose to be born as a powerless human being. And this human being, he grew up, and he, he did not, he was exempt almost from the rules of this world. He never pushed people down. He never decided to get a leg up. He always hang, hanging out with the weak. And, and whenever he would be confronted by the strong, he stood up to the test and he was talking smack to their faces. And, and he talked about a kingdom 
in which there was a new set of values, a new way of doing things in which the hungry are fed and the weak are made strong and the servant of all is the greatest of all. It was a totally new system. And in this system, in this new kingdom, the way to get ahead is not by pushing other people aside. It is by serving the least of these. And at the end of his life, he demonstrated this wasn't just all talk. He voluntarily died. He gave up his life in order to show that the ethics of the kingdom of God can outlast even death itself. Because here's how, here's a distinction, okay? In the kingdom of this world, I'm just, I'm, I'm laying it out very simplistically. It's a little bit brutal, but I think the way it operates is we kill people in order to live. We hurt other people in order to get a leg up. But in the kingdom of God, we die so that others would live. You see that in the kingdom of this world, we kill people in order to live. In the kingdom of God, we die so that others would live. And that's what Jesus demonstrated on the cross. He died in order to give us life. And that is the system, and that has a system that has the power to overthrow our status quo, to bring us true joy and true peace and true eternal life. So I want to ask you, you know, which economy are you aligning yourself with? Are you operating by the rules of this doggy dog world? Or are you operating by the rules of this upside down kingdom of God? You know, it, it's scary sometimes. And I want to say, you know, I don't understand every single person's situation. And many of you are probably going through difficulties that I will never experience. And it, it might be more difficult for some of you in certain situations you know, to, to, to take a stand uh, for, of faith and be a citizen of the kingdom of God in your own context. Um, but, so it is scary sometimes. And the reality is, you know, sometimes when you store up treasures in heaven, you lose treasures here on earth. And sometimes when you are advancing yourself in the kingdom of God, you find yourself falling behind in the kingdom of this world. Those are risks that will happen as followers of Jesus. But the message of Christmas is that the kingdom of God has come. It's already here. It's not a pipe dream. It's not just a nice ideal. The kingdom of God has come. It arrived when Jesus was born, and since that day, slowly but steadily, this kingdom has been growing and expanding and welcoming all who would want to enter to come in through this institution called the church so that one day, one day, this kingdom of God will even outlast the kingdom of this world. And we as human beings, we all have this choice to make. We can either side with the kingdom of this world, which will one day pass away, or we can side with the kingdom of God, which will last for eternity. Um, I want to close on this old Bob Dylan song. Uh, maybe you're, you're familiar. It, it, it's the times that are changing. And uh, in many ways, I, I feel like this captures Mary's song, and it captures uh, the Beatitudes. It, it, it captures this idea that the kingdom of God is here. The line it is drawn, the curse it is cast, the slow one now will later be fast, as the present now will later be past. The order is rapidly fading, and the first one now will later be last, for the times they are a-changing. You know, it's, um, if there was no Christmas story, 
if there was no assurance that the times are changing, then the safest bet is to stick with the status quo, right? Just stick with the status quo. Just do what's familiar with us, do what people have done throughout most of history. Because how do we know things will change? How do we know that we'll be on the right side of history, as people say? But because of Christmas, because Jesus was born, then we have proof, we have evidence that the kingdom is here, that the times they are changing. Christmas is the sign that the infiltration of the kingdom of this world by the kingdom of heaven has begun. The old has gone, the new has come, the bad guys won't win out in the end. The poor, the hungry, the hurt, the marginalized, and the oppressed, well, one day they will find justice. They will find peace. And one day all things will be made right. And I want to encourage you, maybe you, for whatever reason, you are here today, and you're in a place of hopelessness, and you're sort of in this place of futility, and you're thinking, like, I'm just stuck. And it seems like nothing I do ever works. And uh, I feel marginalized, or I feel oppressed, I feel abused, I feel unheard, I feel lost, and it seems like every year is the same thing over and over. I just want to encourage you, let the Christmas story be your story, and may you cling to the story of Jesus. May you cling to the song of Mary, and know that one day, God will flip everything on its head, and uh, you will receive peace, and you will receive justice, you will receive righteousness, and you will receive joy. Take heart in that. Let's pray together as we close. Father, we thank you so much for this Christmas story and uh, just this radical nature, um, this idea that the status quo doesn't always have to be the status quo, that things will change. And we know for sure because things have already started to change, that once upon a time, the Son of God was born into our world, and he died for the sins of humanity. And then he rose in dead and victory rose from the dead in victory. And uh, we thank you for that story because that story has the power to change everything. So God, I pray you would open up our eyes to see the power of Christmas, the power of incarnation, and the power of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and how it has the authority to change even our lives. God, I pray for those of us who uh, we are in the midst of suffering and we feel like nothing we ever do matters and we're just like a cog in a machine of this world. God, we pray that you would rescue us. Not just rescue us from our circumstances, but rescue us from this mentality of futility help us to see the power of the kingdom and how you're making all things right. God, I also want to just pray for all those around the world who are suffering, uh, people um, in Ukraine, people in both Israel and Gaza, people who are still being held hostage, people who are suffering from famine or disease or natural disasters 
for oppression all around the world. There's so many people who long so desperately for the day in which all things will be made right. We pray for the church in those spaces that they would be a voice, a voice of hope to assure people that death doesn't have the final say. The bad guys don't win in the end. Because of Jesus, everything will be made right in the end. And so during this Advent season, we just uh, cling to that hope. We wait in anticipation for that day. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.